What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Do you know who I am? Yeah. Do you know uh, who my girlfriend is? Barbara Streisand? Barbara Streisand. Sand. Sand, yeah, like sands. Like the ocean, like beaches. Barbara Streisand? No, but Streisand. Sand. Wouldn't that a tour so simple? That's Bradley Cooper as Barbara Streisand's boyfriend in a scene from Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza. A new PTA is always an event. We'll discuss. You know what they need? They need the film spotting pronunciation guide. Yeah. (laughs) We'll also share some thoughts on Nightmare Alley, which also stars Bradley Cooper, along with Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara. Is it Mara? Mara? Oh boy, we're in trouble. It's the latest from director Guillermo del Toro. All that plus our picks for the best performances of 2021. Streisand. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Just a little warning, Josh. You better not go on any extended monologues because anytime that you're talking, I'm going to actually be watching one of the 10 or 12 movies I still need to catch up with before our top 10 show next week. You're going to have two screens going on at the same time? Or have you done this yet where you're screening two movies at once? Haven't gone that far yet, but it's inevitable, isn't it? It is that time of year, the giddy rush to catch up with the year's best films and best performances. This week, we'll touch on a couple of those high-profile releases, PTA's Licorice Pizza and Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley. That's later in the show. But first, let's talk about performances. Earlier this week, Adam, we had to submit our ballots for the Chicago Film Critics Association Awards. Covers all sorts of categories, of course, not just performances, but things like best score, editing, cinematography, oh, costume design, original adapted screenplay, director, and picture. I think we both got ours in right under the wire. I know Is that, that I was... I Well, I was operating under a, a 10 p.m. for some reason deadline on Sunday. I had in my head, uh, we had a family holiday event planned for earlier in the evening. So I was scrambling so much to reach the, what was it, a 5, 6 p.m.? Something 6 like PM. that. Yeah. Earlier than I thought. Um, thought I might have been able to know, come back from that event and, and knock out a few categories. I may, boy, I got to fess up. I may have even missed a few of those smaller nomination categories, Adam, okay. this year. I can't believe it. This this is perfect then for this show, Josh, because I was waiting to confess something and have you just annihilate me for it. The first year in the history of the Chicago Film Critics Association Awards, since I've been a member, you've been a member longer than me, but going back to 2006 or 2007, I think, where I did not submit picks in one category. Just one. I, I had to skip editing. I I could not get to it. In my defense, I was cramming. I was trying to fit in every last movie I could, and I knew that I had a window to watch a three-hour film. We'll surely get to it. And I knew that if I started it at 2 o'clock on Sunday, I could finish it around 5, and an hour should be enough time. To get oh, all no. my picks in, right? Except, oh, no. <laughs> even though I've done this a million times, I underestimated just how long it takes to make the picks in each category, 19 categories total. Check your picks in each category if you have that luxury. I underestimated how much time 
it actually takes to make each one of those picks in 19 categories. I often like to, of course, check that I didn't accidentally mark one of the wrong boxes too. And I overestimated, Josh, how much work I had put in ahead of actually going to the ballot. I thought I had gotten through most of the picks, really doing the work of figuring out my top five. I thought I had done that for at least half the categories, if not more. No, less than half. And I found myself between 5.10 and 6 o'clock in a mad dash to get my picks in. I might have just started checking boxes <laughs> like I was like I was trying to finish the ACT in high school and was running out of time and C, you know, just put C, C for everything. C, C. <laughs> That's basically what happened. Um, I think I, we might get kicked out, Adam. We might. I'm, I'm starting to get worried. Why are we confessing worried. this on air? I, I was worse than you. And, and and this was because I was scrambling all day. We were, we hit um, every region of Chicago for various for various reasons. I won't get into. We had to be southwest suburbs, west suburbs, and north suburbs all on Sunday. So yeah. Debbie is being a saint and driving me all over to these places as I'm furiously on my laptop. You know, twenty minutes here, cranking out a category. Twenty minutes there, and then as I said, I look up and I I lost suddenly four hours because of my bad planning. Brutal. So yeah, I'm worse than you. You can, you can, you have it better than me. I missed okay. editing. I think I missed um, costume design and possibly visual effects uh, as well, if I'm recalling. So, so yeah, you know, I don't know why anyone should continue listening to this show. <laughs> well, let's see if we can give them a reason. We also missed out, Josh, because normally we'd be extra prepared ahead of time because we would use this show prior to our top 10 show to go through our picks, actually yes. maybe talk through them, help each other make some picks. There have definitely been times where you've talked me into something, maybe moving somebody slightly up or slightly down. I hope that's happened once or twice, vice versa. And it really just allows you on air to work through some of these very difficult choices. And just the way timing worked out, we didn't have that option. So instead of you hearing the work being done to make our choices. We've actually not only submitted our first round ballots already, or we mostly submitted our first round ballots. <laughs> we also have had to already submit our final ballots. So final votes are in. Yeah. yeah. And by the time you hear this, you can go to chicagofilmcritics.org and you can see the winners as we are taping this. We don't know the winners. We only know how we have voted. So we're going to, talk through those picks. We're going to see what we agree and disagree on and what we agree and disagree on with our brethren in the Chicago Film Critics Association. So we have five categories for you. We're going to focus on this show on the acting categories. If you want to hear our picks in other categories, you can sign up to become a film spotting family member on Patreon. Our bonus show this month will include more banter about our ballots. We're going to start with the best supporting actor, and I'm going to give you the five names that the Chicago Film Critics Association voted for as the final nominees, and we'll see where you differed. Bradley Cooper, Licorice Pizza, Coleman Domingo, Zola, Jeffrey Wright, The French Dispatch, Cody Smith-McPhee, The Power of the Dog, and Mike Feist for West Side Story. Yeah, so I tweeted that this was my toughest category because I actually had four of the five on my mm -hmm. ballot here, and uh, I think the only one I didn't have was Bradley Cooper. We'll see if you and I differ on that, but okay. it was pretty tight. I would say 
beyond that, Coleman Domingo and Zola, definitely a nominee for me, um, but in a different tier than Mike Feist, who was probably in a different tier than Cody Smith-McPhee, who at the end of the day, when I really sat down, was in a different tier than Jeffrey Wright, who for me is at the top. And Mm -hmm. I wanted, you know, I came out of the French Dispatch thinking that revisiting the French dispatch. I thought that even more strongly. And so I wanted to interrogate, you know, this is why it takes so long. As you're saying, you think like, oh, it's simple. I'm just, that's going to be my vote. Right. But no, no, this is the time you see, you hear what other people have been talking about and highlighting across the year. You, um, watch some movies, cram in some movies you hadn't seen with potential candidates. And so I wanted to interrogate that Jeffrey Wright um, decision. And I did, but still, you know, ended up circling right back to where I started. I do think for me, you know, he's the best of the bunch, but it's a very strong bunch. So we are in agreement on Jeffrey Wright, and we are similar in that we shared four picks with the CFCA. The difference for me, I couldn't vote for Coleman Domingo because Zola is still a film that despite all of my last minute cramming, I still have not seen. But I did have Bradley Cooper. I had Jeffrey Wright. I had Cody Smith McPhee and I had Mike Feist. My fifth nominee was actually one of Mike Feist's rivals and co-stars in West Side Story, David Alvarez, who I think mm. is really wonderful as Bernardo. Yes. Having given it a little bit more thought and having seen more movies here in just the past 48 hours or so, I would have definitely given strong consideration to someone who wasn't even listed on our ballot. And that doesn't mean we couldn't write them in. They don't necessarily include literally every performer, but how about Masaki Okada for drive my car Mm. who plays the former TV star now disgraced who has a really pivotal role in this film and actually a really pivotal emotional scene where I think he's really fantastic. I also would have considered Anders Danielson Lee, who appears in two movies I saw back to back that are both very good, Bergman Island and The Worst Person in the World. I think he probably does have a slightly bigger role in Worst Person, and that's where I would have nominated him. I went back and forth on Bradley Cooper. I did ultimately sneak him in. It doesn't feel right on one hand because he just has such a small part in the film. Like, you could obviously cut out almost everything that has to do with John Peters, and you would not alter the arc of the film at all. But you would also miss out on some great scenes and you would miss out on some hilarious scenes. I simply didn't laugh harder at anything all year than that first conversation between Cooper Hoffman and Bradley Cooper. So I did put him in that fifth slot, Josh. Yeah, he's just, it's just a jolt of intensity and comic energy that Cooper so often can bring, you know, he he can be written off, I think, as, or, or we can forget that he has that potential. Um, but uh, wasn't it, isn't it like Wedding Crashers, one of his earliest roles, mm-hmm. I think? And and so it just reminds you of, of the mark he made there in the type of performance. And this is a different sort of comedy he's doing, yeah. but still, um, it's still comedy and he is, he is great in it. Um, definitely didn't have any issues with his performance. I think maybe it was a little bit of the the cameo feel uh, that it did have for me. Uh, I also wanted to mention quickly, I do have kind of like outlier people mm-hmm. who are um, ones that, you know, I wrote down. This is a document I start in January. 
January. Um, speaking of like, we really don't try to wing this last minute. We're, we're working on this all year. And someone I had early on, but just didn't make this final list, but I want to mention was Titus Burgess, who played uh, Reverend James Cleveland in Respect. So um, a family friend of the Aretha, of Aretha Franklin and her family. And that's kind of a cameo situation too. If I'm remembering correctly, I know he has two very indelible scenes and maybe shows up here and there otherwise, but feels a little bit more like a cameo when I do start to consider some of these other actors on this list who um, who are more of a presence throughout their films. I'll throw in one more name. I wonder if you even remotely considered Jason Momoa is really watchable in Dune. <laughs> Every time he's on screen in that film, something good is happening. Yeah, he's just he's bringing a little bit of what Bradley Cooper does, I think, where a little bit of comedy, certainly a lot of energy in a movie mm-hmm. that um, I liked quite a bit. But I don't think comedy and energy are the two things you think of right away with Dune. And so that would be that movie would really be uh, a slog without his presence. So I liked him there. I don't know if enough to to give him consideration here, though. So after we submit our top five. And they get accumulated and tabulated, and there is a final five. We vote on the top three, though I will throw in, even though I'm sure everyone out there doesn't really care that much about the math, you can choose to not pick someone for all three slots. In other words, if you feel really strongly about the person you want to put in first place in a category, you could leave out others even if you like them. Yeah. Or second place and third place because you really want that first place person to win and not give any points to anyone else. And I do take advantage of that from yeah. time to time, Josh. I don't know if you do. In this category, I did use all three of my slots. I wonder if we then had crossover here. We certainly did on two of them because I had Mike Feist in my number two slot in the final ballot. I had Jeffrey Wright as number one. I put Cody Smith McPhee in that third slot. What about you? Oh man, this is scary. Yeah, I'm right there with you. And same same rankings. And I agree because these uh, are weighted votes. Um, I will take advantage of that in the case of, as you said, if there's one person that I or film that I feel particularly strongly about, or if there are films where with candidates I didn't care for or I haven't mm-hmm. seen, obviously. So yeah. so yeah, I do take advantage of that too. But here again, going back to those tiers, because those three were pretty close in my mind, mm-hmm. um, I wanted to give each of them a nod with a vote, but I do have right in my first choice slot. Yeah. And it wasn't a tough choice because it is a case where you have an actor doing so much with so little. He doesn't He doesn't raise his voice barely above a whisper. I think at any point, in his part of the French Dispatch, but there's nothing boring about it. He brings a tremendous gravitas to it and curiosity and empathy because that's who his character is. Mm -hmm. Like those aren't things Jeffrey Wright has to perform. He just literally has to act that character. You know what else he, you know what else he does? And the reason Wes Anderson's films affect me so emotionally is because they sucker punch me. I've talked about this before. They're not Mm -hmm. going for that, um, emotional appeal, which is why a lot of people actually find him cold, but Jeffrey Wright has to embody a majority of the emotion of that film in his character. But the trick, here's the Anderson trick. The character wants to write the emotion out of his own story, Mm -hmm. right? If you think about that conversation with him and Bill Murray and Bill Murray's like, that's the best part. And he's right. Like that is the gut punch in that movie. But the reason Wright's character works so well is because he wants to 
edit it out. He's mm-hmm. not going for the emotional gut punch. And by doing that, the character and the performance absolutely deliver it. Yeah. That's where the movie for me completely came together. And you're right. It's the emotional core of the film. We will go to best supporting actress. The finalists, according to the Chicago Film Critics Association, Ariana DeBose, West Side Story, Katrina Balfe, Belfast, Jesse Buckley, The Lost Daughter, Riley Keough for Zola, and Ruth Nega for Passing. How much alignment did you have here, Josh? All right. So I'm jumping around on tabs here. I had, let me look quickly. Sorry, this is going to be. You didn't do color coding like me? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it makes it so much easier to look at. I know. Reference. You, you probably have a spreadsheet for this, don't you? Uh, just a good old Google Doc in this case, Josh. <laughs> Maybe next year. <laughs> okay. So I had uh, Ariana DuBose for West Side Story, and I had Ruth Nega for Passing. So only two in this category. The others who I actually nominated were Alicia Vikander for The Green Knight. Um, Almost a cameo, but it's also kind of a double role in that film, too. Um, And then here's my, well, before I get to my wild card, quickly, Pamela Adlin, who has a part in Holler, a very small film that um, I talked about, I think maybe for possible Golden Brick uh, contention. It's not one of our finalists, but she plays the main character's estranged mother, a drug addicted mother who is um, in a rehab facility or possibly even serving time. I'm trying to remember and basically just kills a standout scene um, that really is important for that film. But my wild card in this category uh, is actually comes from the tragedy of Macbeth. Yep. And it's Catherine Hunter who so good. plays. I guess the witch, but is also at the same time playing really the witches, the, right? The three weird sisters, right? It, yeah. It's, it's a singular performance and the filmmaking has a lot to do with this. The way, um, Joel Cohen uses imagery to make it look like there are three of them when we're kind of focusing just on her. She also has another part as an old man where she's in completely different makeup and effects, but my goodness, as the witch witches it's almost like um it's almost like a dance performance she's contorting and moving her body Mm -hmm. doing things with her voice which may be you know affected by the sound design as well and it seems like the sort of thing yeah you can appreciate it but you really award that with a best supporting actress nomination and i thought yeah i think you do because i don't know if we'll get a chance to talk about it but i think the vision of the sorcery and the witchcraft in the tragedy of Macbeth is one of the more distinctive elements of Cohen's interpretation. And she's crucial to that. So I gave her my fifth slot. I think that's a great choice. She was just on the outside looking in for me, but definitely in contention like you. I had two of the five and they are the same two: Ruth Nega for passing and Ariana DeBose for West Side Story. My three other candidates were Kate Blanchett for Nightmare Alley, which I know we'll talk about here shortly. Zazie Bates for Nine Days, one of our Golden Brick contenders. And I really like Gabby Hoffman in Mike Mills' Come On, Come On in a supporting role along with Joaquin Phoenix there and Woody Norman as her son. Some outliers that I have to mention in addition to Catherine Hunter, Susanna Sohn for Red Rocket. Mia Vasakovska, though a small role, a very powerful one in Bergman Island, the Mia Hansen Love film. And I know early on, even though I was not a fan of this film, 
we were both a fan of Dominique Fishback's performance yeah. in Judas and the Black Messiah. Ultimately, this was an easy one for me, and it sounds like, again, we're going to be sharing finalists here. Ruth Nega for Passing, my number one, followed by DeBose for West Side Story. And I didn't even pick one of the other three, despite the fact that I think Jesse Buckley is very good in The Lost Daughter. Balf is very good in Belfast. I haven't seen Zola, so can't weigh in there on Riley Keough. Yeah, I felt so strongly about Ruth Nega in passing that I gave her just the vote for first choice um, and really hoping she takes it. It's just such, you know, that's a case of being such a crucial uh part of what the movie is doing it, mm-hmm. kind of the opposite of what we were talking about with bradley cooper and licorice pizza maybe you could pluck him out though maybe we'll get to this you'd also lose that whole fantastic truck sequence um but uh which i guess doesn't really have all that much to do with his no, character but, but that's what i was thinking of yeah when yeah I said that but yeah you can't take you can't take ruth nega out of passing i, I mean you, <laughs> no. that, that's the movie right even though it's all a supporting the action role. yes all of the drama revolves around really her her character. She's the instigator there. And what a subtle but stylish one she is in that film. We talked about just how she kind of dominates every space that she's in, despite the fact that she's ultimately a pretty small figure, but it's all about the physicality and the poise she brings to that role. Well, anyway, she goes as white. So you haven't ever thought to? What? I'm asking if you ever thought of passing, really. No, why should I? I mean, for convenience, occasionally, I suppose, but no. I just mean I have everything I've ever wanted. Except perhaps a little more money. Well, of course, that's all anybody ever wants. A little more money. <laughs> Money's an awfully nice thing to have. In fact, all things considered, I think it's entirely worth the price. I'll just say briefly, I know we did just talk about West Side Story a couple weeks ago and had a lot of praise for DeBose, but in West Side Story, the biggest badass, and this goes for the original too, is not Riff or certainly Tony or even Bernardo, who may be overall my favorite character. It's it's Anita. And and she she captures that. She captures that blazing spirit, but also with vulnerability and is usually the voice of reason. And the moment on the stairs we touched on in our review, that deep breath she takes after being humiliated in her own apartment by a police officer, as if she hasn't suffered enough at that point, that is the strongest emotional beat in West Side Story for me. Yeah, I agree. You can't back off your Ansel Elgort love. I mean, I thought he was the biggest badass in that movie for you. No, love is love is putting it a bit too strongly there, Josh. Okay. I'm still I'm still a Bernardo guy, way over Tony in West Side Story. Let's move on then to the lead performances. The finalists are Andrew Garfield, Tick, Tick, Boom. I know he didn't make your list. Benedict Cumberbatch, The Power of the Dog. Hidetoshi Nishijima, Drive My Car. Nicolas Cage for Pig. And Simon Rex for Red Rocket. Now, before you tell me which ones you share, I want to throw this out to you. I mentioned this to Sam, our producer. This category was actually very hard because there are a lot of great candidates and ranking them was tough. But picking the five for me was actually relatively easy because as I started to look at all of the options and thought about how I felt about them, for some reason, I kind of just looked into the future. I looked into my crystal ball like five years from now, 10 years from now, and I had this vision of somebody putting together an article looking back on the best actors 
of 2021. And I could see the slideshow. I knew the faces that were going to be in it. Not that kind of the timelessness of the performances or how, you know, history ultimately feels about them is the true test of a great performance. But I was thinking about it in those terms and I knew who the five faces were. And for me, it was four of those five. It was Garfield. It was Cage. It was Cumberbatch. And it was Simon Rex. I couldn't imagine talking about 2021 and the year in performances without talking about those four at least. And for me, the fifth was one who got left out. That's Oscar Isaac for the card counter. Hmm. Um, interesting. I, I I haven't really thought about it that way. I don't think Garfield is or Tick Tick are going to have that sort of, you know, cultural lasting power. You just and don't get it. You just don't get no, it, do I, you? I mean, I think a certain segment of the population really that movie is like perfectly made for, and that's great. And I don't yeah. think Garfield, as I said, I don't think he's bad in the role. I think he's just kind of like doing one thing over and over as as kind of the movie is. But um, so, yeah, so he didn't make my list. I do share three here, and that would be Benedict Cumberbatch, Hidetoshi Nishijima, and Simon Rex, actually, from Red Rocket. I was, you know, really happy to see that uh, he ended up making making the finalists as well. But this is a tough category. Um, the other two that I put in, Dev Patel for The Green Knight mm-hmm. and uh, Lakeith Stanfield, going back, way back to Judas and the Black Messiah, you know, which is a film that some people um, aren't even considered considering 2021. I'm glad that our group did. Um, and I think we differed on this one, Adam. He was just, you know, I talked about him being the perfect weasel in that part. And uh, I still love that performance. But yeah, I thought about Nicolas Cage in Pig. Um, I thought about Vincent Lindon in Titan. And uh, the other one that I thought about was Denzel Washington in The Tragedy of Macbeth. So this was a tough category for me, um, but I did in the end have three of those that uh, ended up making the final ballot. Well, I had five kind of honorable mentions here. You only mentioned one of them, Dev Patel, for The Green Knight. And you mentioned Judas. And although I'm not a fan, as I said, of that film overall, or really of that Lakeith Stanfield performance, I did have to give some thought to Daniel Kaluuya, even though he's not the lead in that movie and doesn't belong in that category. He certainly would have been in my mind for best supporting actor, really like Winston Duke in nine days. And I also, what a year for Bradley Cooper, what a December for Bradley Cooper. I really like him in Del Toro's Nightmare. Oh, you did. Oh yeah. I can't wait to talk about that. I'm all in on Cooper in that role, which is not something I ever thought I would say. No, really about any film. I've always just been kind of lukewarm on Bradley Cooper. And then he hits me with licorice pizza and Nightmare Alley. But two others, you said one of them and he's one of the finalists. In fairness to me, leaving off Hidetoshi Nishijima, even though I saw it before I submitted my ballot, I was so locked into those five names that I mentioned, and I really did so respect Oscar Isaac's performance in The Card Counter that I didn't do any last-minute maneuvering, but I think that role is one that absolutely belongs in the conversation among the best of the year. And in that slideshow five or ten years down the road, I think Nishijima is definitely going to be in that somewhere. And another Golden Brick nominee, The Killing of Two Lovers, I wish got more attention. That's one of the reasons why we put it on that shortlist. But Clayne Crawford, who is the star of that film as the husband who's really just trying to keep it all together as he is estranged from his wife and kids is one of my favorite lead performances of the year. Ultimately, though, 
had to go with Simon Rex as my number one. Cumberbatch is number two. And this is where the fun contradictions come into play sometimes as you submit one ballot and then you actually have to make the final decision. I did go with Nishijima at number three over Nicolas Cage and Andrew Garfield. Okay, so I've got Cumberbatch first, Nishijima second, and Simon Rex third. I want to hear quickly, um, what is it about Simon Rex that got your first choice vote there? Because I know we talked about him in our review and we were both appreciative, but when it came down to it and you're comparing a, not a novice, um, but uh, a different uh, career, shall we say, than someone like Cumberbatch or Nishijima, mm-hmm. uh, but a different set of skills, different certainly. set of skills. Yeah. And, and it's so funny that you asked this question because I hadn't thought about it framed that way, but I'm going to completely do the opposite of what I did in this category with the lead actress category in a moment. You're right. These performers are very different, especially if you are pitting someone like Cumberbatch and that performance in the power of the dog against Simon Rex in red rocket. But I think for me, it was just the high wire act of making someone that annoying and selfish, that relatable and charming. I think maybe probably a terrible analogy here to go to sports, though I know you'll appreciate it, Josh, but it's kind of that MVP debate. (laughs) You know, Cumberbatch Mm. is really, really good and maybe maybe does ultimately own the power of the dog. But there are a lot of other really good performances in that film. And even though there are other performances in Red Rocket I like, I feel like he carries that. Yeah, film. that's the word. He, yeah, he's carrying it. Seriously, I just need a place to crash for a couple of days. What's the big deal? Nike, go f*** yourself. Oh, you don't even know what I've been through. Oh, Look at my f- face. I just was on a bus for two days. I had to walk here from the bus station. Why don't you stay with your mama? My mom's in a nursing home in Labarque, a care home. I can't sleep there. Nike, what do you want? My God, what do I just, you want? I just told you. I just need to crash for a couple days. What, you want money, right? Here. Money? I got $22. Here, come get it. I can't come on your property. Come get your money. You should have called. And you're right about the, the charisma, even though he's uh, a scuzz. And for me, the reason he ended up in this category really is that final close-up that we touched on uh, without really giving away, but th- he's doing something even different there. As good as he is doing that other stuff, the non-verbal acting going on there was just like, wow, okay, this guy's, he's he's working on the level of these other, you know, mm-hmm. what pros, whatever, whatever you want to call him. One other uh, person I want to give a quick nod to, my outlier here, is Don Cheadle in the Soderbergh film, No yeah. Sudden Move. Would have loved to have find, found a place for him among the top five because you know, just a great career he has had and is still doing good work in maybe a film that's a little too small, uh, at least this year for a lot of people to notice, but he was fantastic. That brings us to our penultimate category, lead actress. The five finalists are Agatha Roussel for Titan, Alana Haim for Licorice Pizza, Jessica Chastain, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Kristen Stewart for Spencer, and Olivia Coleman for The Lost Daughter. And Josh, as if we haven't already bemoaned how chaotic this voting process was for us. Here's where the wheels just completely 
fell off the wagon for me. But I want to hear first where you came out in this category. Who were your five? Which ones did you share? Oh, man, I had a packed list for this category. And the only two I actually share, Olivia Coleman in The Lost Daughter and Alana Haim in Licorice Pizza. My other choices for this were Tessa Thompson in Passing, Tilda Swinton in Memoria, and then Taylor Page in Zola. I mean, I totally makes complete sense when, when you catch up with this, Adam, why Riley Keough would get the nod, right? She's kind of like doing the, here's that word you don't like, but biggest and in a good way. Like this, the character she plays is supposed to be like mm-hmm. the loudest, most uh, kind of annoying person in the room. And she's quite amusing. But I keyed in more with what Taylor Page is doing as giving the side eyes and being the narrator of this insane uh, trip that she takes um, and just offering sort of a meta commentary as she's performing a fully embodied, lived in actual person. Um, It's just a high wire act of comedy and drama that Paige pulls off. So I had to vote for her and my outliers in this category, Adam, I share some of, you know, the ones I, my runners up are some of the same ones you mentioned, Kristen Stewart, uh, Jessica Chastain, my outlier, Kristen Wiig and Annie Momolo for Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar because that just kind of that's a singular performance given by two people at the same time, the way they play off each other. And I also wanted to say kudos to our friend Matt Singer. I don't know if you saw it, but at Screen Crush, Adam, his top yeah, 10 of the year. Oh, I saw it. Barb and Star, number one. Bravo, number one. sir. Bravo. Yeah. I mean, as someone who has uh, made yeah. misbegotten and much vilified number one picks over the years on your top 10 list, I can only salute you. So for lead actress, I shared two of the finalists as well, but one different one. We did have in common Alana Heim for Licorice Pizza. I'm really surprised, actually, as someone who was a much bigger proponent of the film than me, that you didn't have Agatha Roussel from Teton in your top five. Yeah, I think I kind of touched on this in the review, though. I think she's doing what the movie requires of her, but I almost feel like she's being used as a living art installation project, uh, her body. And if anyone's seen the movie, they know what I'm talking about. And I'm not, you know, I guess I'm just still trying to wrap my head around how that what that means for her as a performance or is she a canvas being operated on? And that's that's fair. But I think that's also why I like the performance on some level. I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but she gives her body so over to that role. That is true. Still, there's still a performative aspect to being willing to be that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. To bring it to life. Yeah. I'm by no means saying she's not giving a performance. It's just, you know, um, I feel like Julia Ducourneau is acting upon her (laughs) just as much, if not more. (laughs) Sure. So. You mentioned Tilda Swinton for Memoria, and I definitely thought about her. I mean, who other, I'm not saying anything new here, but who other than Tilda Swinton can take such weird, unnerving situations and make them so fascinatingly normal? Yeah. (laughs) And that's, that's really what she does in Memoria. I was ultimately a fan of the Souvenir Part 2 and honor Swinton Burns' performance. So some more Swinton love there. Tilda Swinton actually co-stars in that movie with her daughter. I liked it more than The Souvenir, as a lot of people would have predicted, though I liked it enough, part two, that it makes me 
want to rewatch the first one and seeing them as a pair, mm. I'd probably appreciate it a lot more. I think an overlooked performance from earlier in the year in a in a good movie, but a great performance is Patty Harrison yes. in Together Together opposite Ed Helms. And I was a little bit surprised to see Toko Miura in this category for Drive My Car. She is the driver in that film. And I guess I think of her as more of a supporting turn, though she certainly takes on a bigger role in the movie as we get into the final act. So I thought it was a name worth calling out. But the three that ultimately made it onto my ballot were Rachel Sennett for the Golden Brick nominated Shiva Baby, Josephine Sands for Celine Sciamma's film, Petite Mama. I do not know how old she is. I know she's playing an eight-year-old in the movie, and I think it's as sophisticated as any performance by any actor this year. But my number one, who was unfortunately not selected by the CFCA, Renata Reinsf for The Worst Person in the World, the Joachim Trier film. She's someone who I guess I had seen before because she has one line in Trier's Oslo, August 31st, which is a movie I also really like. But otherwise, she's a Norwegian theater actress and had done some TV. And this is her first lead role. And I swear to you, I did not know this until about 30 minutes ago after I'd already submitted my ballot. She had actually won at Cannes this year for Best Actress for this performance. This is the good part of me being blissfully unaware of what's happening. Otherwise, in the film world, I'm sure I saw it in a list somewhere and didn't process it because I hadn't had a chance to see the movie yet. But she plays a character who just jumps off the screen. She is flaky to an extent, but just so sharp. And there's a propulsive energy to the movie that she matches Perfectly. And it's it's a tough role, I think, in some ways, because she has to represent a generation of seekers, of digitally distracted people who are grasping for meaning every day and just trying to make sense moment to moment of their lives. And yet also, of course, be a human being and not just that, but be an individual. And she represents all of that. And if you were someone who was inclined to be attracted to her, and this is a movie very much about relationships and that struggle, you know, watching it, that this character would make you absolutely miserable, <laughs> that you would come to regret this, and yet you would run, not walk, to be in a relationship with her just because of that vitality, that that energy that she brings. So I am all in on Renata Reinsva, who apparently is acting in her first lead role in The Worst Person in the World. All right, your favorite performance of the year. I'm yep. a Best Actress. I'm all the more reason to look forward to catching up with that one. I couldn't squeeze that one in before voting. So, But we haven't gotten here to then the actual finalists and really talked about who we're going to vote for because Reince didn't make the list. But you had Olivia Coleman in there, and you did have Kristen Stewart for Spencer or no? She was a runner-up for me, yeah. So okay. she's, she wasn't in my top five. So... This is where I alluded to it earlier. Things got crazy because I looked at this category and it was the one where I was the most behind. I had only seen Titan and Licorice Pizza, hadn't caught up with yet the eyes of Tammy Faye, Spencer or The Lost Daughter. And I kind of just resigned myself to the fact that I'll have to abstain from this category. 
And yet somehow I was determined, Josh. And in the past 24 hours, I watched all three films. Impressive. Stupid, probably. And what it did, of course, was then jumble all of these performances in my head. You want to talk about recency bias? You know, this is an extreme version of that. Sure. I really well, and all you're make... thinking about too is like, what, what is what is happening in this performance? How does it compare to the previous exactly. performance? So, yeah, I really can't make heads or tails of how I feel about any of these performances, especially weight against movies that I had a longer time to digest and you know really have sat with for a while. So, submitting the final ballot today, I probably looked at this category for 20 minutes and switched picks around and talked myself in and out of things. And we'll go back to what you brought up with Cumberbatch and Simon Rex. Do you go with someone like Alana Haim, as good as she is in Licorice Pizza, over someone like, well, Jessica Chastain, Kristen Stewart, or Olivia Coleman in The Lost Daughter? There's something about Haim's performance, as strong as it is, and how unique it is, where you still watch it and go, if she wasn't embodying that character, would would she be as good? And maybe that's not fair because I'm judging the performance that I'm seeing her in, not right. other performances she may or may not do. Nevertheless, you're thinking about it in relation to some of these other actresses, and you watch someone like Olivia Coleman in The Lost Daughter give almost a completely interior performance, mostly watching, mostly remembering, just reacting, and... All the tension in the film, and there is a lot of it, much of it comes from the filmmaking. Maggie Gyllenhaal here in her directing debut. And at one point, Coleman's character says out loud, I'm suffocating. Even though the craft here is really strong, I don't know that it really hits you with the full effect if it isn't for Coleman and that kind of curt exterior and demeanor that she has that belies this deep well of pain. It was the last performance I watched, and it is my number one. Yeah, I think you landed in the right place and for the right reasons. I mean, talk about carrying a movie. I don't know of the films I saw last year. I don't know if anyone was asked to carry a movie as thoroughly as she is here. And it is just that. Think of how few scenes she has with another actor in it. I mean, there's um, a number with Dakota Johnson, a couple with Ed Harris. I mean, they are there in the movie, but but really it is the moments alone, as you said, of her watching, of just her face communicating everything we need to know. And I know nothing about the practice of acting. Maybe an, an actor would tell me, you know what, it's actually harder to be in a scene with another actor because you're having to respond to them and, and they're going to throw things at you. You may not be prepared for Maybe you have more control if it's just you, just the camera on you. But it seems to me that um, it'd be harder if you have to do everything for a yeah. scene. And Olivia Coleman does everything in so many scenes in The Lost Daughter and everything that that movie needs just perfectly. And I also have to say, <laughs> you know, the early sequences of her playing this um, literature professor on a holiday by herself on a beach holiday where <laughs> she is in a chair just with a notepad and a pen, maybe a uh -huh. book, no one's around enjoying the serenity of the moment. And then this extended family yeah. rushes in and just the like... 
Oh, it yeah. is so me. It is just yeah. the oh, look man. she's giving Most this relatable family. Oh my moment of the year, right? <laughs> yes. So maybe that's a little bit why I'm I'm so in, on board with her as the best performance of the year because I can relate. But no, I I do think she's so good. I she was the only one I gave my vote to. I think she's okay. I think she's far ahead of of the others in this category. Well, I really do want to talk about Kristen Stewart and her performance in Spencer. I know you talked about that a little bit on the show, but frankly, I don't remember what you said about that performance. And Adam, come on. It's it's a really interesting one. That's <laughs> that's the very basic word I'll use. Interesting. Maybe we'll get to talk about it in bonus content, or maybe Spencer will make a top 10 list on our roundtable show, and we'll get a chance to dive in. Then let's close out quickly here. We've already talked about a lot of these names. The CFCA gives a Breakthrough Filmmaker Award and a Most Promising Performer Award. So really people making their film debuts. Unfortunately, Renata Reintz didn't qualify, I guess, even though it was her first lead role. And I only shared one pick here, and I'm guessing you shared at minimum this one. Ariana DeBose for West Side Story did make the CFCA Final Five. She got my vote, followed by Alana Haim. And I was really happy to see Rachel Sennett get in there for Shiva Baby, even though there were some other names I considered, like the aforementioned Josephine Sands for Petite Mama, Mike Feist for West Side Story, got a supporting actor nod, but didn't get the most promising performer nomination, Susanna Sohn for Red Rocket, and Cooper Hoffman for Licorice Pizza, in addition to his co-star, Alana Heim. Yeah, those were the three that I, um, you know, nominated were Alana Heim, Cooper Hoffman, and Ariana DeBose. And, you know, this is maybe where we can talk a little bit about these licorice pizza performances because, you know, novices in both cases. And I do wonder, Adam, this is kind of the projecting forward that you were doing with that, you know, five years from now, what what is that slideshow going to look like? These performances are so indelible in licorice pizza by these two that yeah. I can see it going either way. I can mm-hmm. see uh, Alana Haim becoming a legit star, an unconventional star in some ways, but a legit star and Cooper Hoffman, the same thing, maybe in the manner that his father was a star, yeah. Philip Seymour, or Hoffman, never right? making another film <laughs> or what they are doing here, which is so wonderful. And especially mm-hmm. in concert with each other, that it's going to be preserved in Amber cinematic Amber, And we will never be able to see them as anyone else. And I think that's, that's a real possibility. Think of, you know, who comes to mind? Patrick Fugit in Almost Famous Mm. has done more work since that movie, but will he ever be anyone else? I, I mean, not for me. And, uh, I, I just think that there may be something similar at play here. So, um, obviously I think they're both wonderful in the film. I think they're wonderful together. And yeah, my vote went to now that being said, my votes, final votes went to Alana Haim for first choice. And then I did go with Ariana DeBose in West Side Story for second choice. Um, no knock on Cooper Hoffman at all. Maybe we'll get more into this when we talk about licorice pizza, but that's where I ended up in, in the end. You can see all of our nominees at filmspotting.net. Click on lists at the top of the page. You can see all of the Chicago Film Critics nominees and the winners. They will be out by the time you hear this at chicagofilmcritics.org. And again, if you would like to hear Josh and I talk about a few more picks, we'll share our selections for Breakthrough Filmmaker for Cinematography. Boy, that was a tough one this year, as well as the screenplay categories. 
You can sign up to become a member of the Film Spotting family over on Patreon and get that bonus show, patreon.com slash filmspotting. Well, as we've hinted, there is more to Licorice Pizza than those performances by Alana Haim and Cooper Hoffman. Adam and I will review the rest of the film when we come back. Plus, thoughts on Nightmare Alley and results from the film spotting poll asking for your favorite PTA movie. Stay with us. Hey, if it's love you want, then you better be love bluff. If smile you want, better get to smiling. If it's good times you want, baby, get your good times. for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now, brief as you can, what is your name? Stanton Carlisle. Are you a true medium? Yes, I am. Mr. Carlisle. Doctor, how about that? You're listening to Film Spotting. Josh Larson here with Adam Kempinar. Lots of Bradley Cooper this week. That is Cooper again in the trailer for Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley, which opens in wide release this weekend. Alley also stars Kate Blanchett, Rooney Mara, Tony Collette, Willem Dafoe, and Richard Jenkins. It's the second filmed version of a 1946 novel by William Lindsey Graham. The first movie came out in 47. It's about a con man played by Cooper who joins a traveling carnival as a mentalist. Blanchett is Lilith Ritter, a psychiatrist who initially tries to prove that Cooper's Stanton Carlisle is a fraud, but the two eventually become partners and lovers. And if that plot synopsis leads you to believe that Cooper and Blanchett live happily ever after, well, Nightmare Alley is also, I think you could say, a film noir. Now, Adam, we should be in good fighting shape to talk about Nightmare Alley because of that connection earlier this year. We devoted some time to a 40s noir marathon. Now, if the 46 version of Nightmare Alley is one we considered, then my mind is going even more quickly than I thought because I was surprised. It was, I think, the day of the screening when I realized that there was an earlier version of this. Maybe we did discuss it and I had just forgotten that for our marathon. But in any case, definitely some noir touches here. And I'm wondering, how soon into the film did you realize you were watching Mm -hmm. a Guillermo del Toro noir, which is maybe not something we expected? Yeah, it's very possible this title, The 46, was on a list of 40s film noirs we were considering. But like you, I don't recall that. And until you sitting next to me at that screening said something about it being a remake of a 40s film, I had absolutely... No idea. So to answer your question, of course, to some extent, I could see the noir elements at play right from the beginning. You have a man who seems to have 
committed a crime at the very beginning or is at least very intent on covering a crime up. He hits the road basically as a drifter and joins the carnival. So, yeah, that's that's there. And I'll jump ahead a little bit and say this film is bleak. <laughs> this film is oh pretty gosh. bleak, just like so many of the films we saw in that marathon. But no, I really had no idea what this movie was at all based on a few factors. One, complete ignorance of the details walking in. Not only, as I said, did I not know there was an original film, so I certainly haven't seen it. I sort of got giddy when Kate Blanchett showed up. I didn't know she was in the movie. And second, when I think about Del Toro, and I'm probably not alone in this, I kind of automatically assume there's going to be some supernatural or fantasy element at play, which seems a little bit incongruous with film noir. What clips from the trailer I did see supported that assumption, too. The shots of Cooper sitting in a room surrounded by fire, suggestions of his special abilities, of beasts, and other hints of the grotesque. Probably the best way to put it, I went in thinking the movie was about the nightmare, when it turns out it's really more about the alley. <laughs> and I was, I was ready to go on that ride with this movie. The genuine pleasant surprise for me was discovering truly what an unabashed, all-out noir this film was. From Blanchett's character, to the big scheme, the hubris of Cooper's character, and pushing the scheme too far, the fatalism of it, some good hard-boiled dialogue here and there, the both grim and gorgeous lighting. I mean, this movie has atmosphere to burn, right? Mm -hmm. So many scenes that take place outdoors involve thunder and rain or snow. And, and more than anything, the con man here actually has to become kind of a detective, this mentalist, in order to pull off what is the big scheme. He's chasing down clues and leads. But then again, being Del Toro, there are still some of those supernatural touches that maybe we can get into. So all of that combined to make this really a good watch for me. And I was sure sitting next to you, even though you gave away nothing, you hinted at nothing in your posture or any of your movements, Josh, I was sure that this was one of those cases where I was enjoying this so much more than I expected that I knew that you were going to take it down, that you were just going to knock this movie down a peg and tell me how wrong I was. Am I wrong or am I right? Oh, man. I, why would you think that? This is so up my alley. Because you do that to me. <laughs> well, sometimes. You hurt me I, sometimes, Josh. Believe it or not, I don't go into movies with my main objective thinking, how can I come out of this and Wait, hurt Adam? <laughs> what? It's not about It's not about me? It's not. It's not. Oh, this, okay. this was, I, I hate to say that I loved this because you're right. I think you said grim. I mean, this thing is nasty. It is really nasty. And, and quickly, before I forget... You were talking about supernatural elements. There is a reading of this movie where nothing supernatural ever happens once, right? Absolutely. And, yes. and that's that, I think, is the trick that Del Toro may be pulling that is the film's greatest trick. I'd have to watch it again with that in mind and, and see if that's right. But I think that's no, probably true. No, I think true. it is. Yeah. So, yeah, going back to the grim and the nasty, you know, when I think of Del Toro, don't tell me why, because this is a guy who has made, you know, going back to something like The Devil's Backbone, even Pan's Labyrinth and certainly Crimson Peak, which I liked more than most people. Those are nasty movies. I mean, th those are really troubling disturbing movies about people doing pretty terrible things. But why do I still think of this guy as cuddly? You know, it's, it's kind of like his films is cuddly. Mm. Uh, that that's sort of where I am. So I, as, as this, as nightmare alley gets darker and darker and, and everyone we meet has another motive. And you start asking yourself, 
you know, each scene kind of boils down to who's conning who in this scene and for what purpose. Suddenly I realized, oh yeah, he does make movies like this, doesn't he? And there's a hellish elegance to what is going on here. And I think that's the trick that he pulls is you describe the production details and it's so lush that you get sucked into it, but then you realize, oh my gosh, but but I'm in hell. Like I'm actually in hell. And that's, that's a real motif here, right? One of the fun house in the carnival is actually a recreation of hell that people go through. You mentioned the flames already. Mm-hmm. How about, how about another total del Toro visual touch? Um, in the carnival, there is a, a supposed baby in a jar, uh, like a, this specimen who has a third eye, right? And it's yeah, just- that follows you. That follows you. It's a condemning eye. So again, mm-hmm. this idea of being in hell. So, so that stuff is all like sinisterly fantastic. And to go briefly back to our noir marathon, the one I thought of that we did end up doing was Detour. Yeah, me too. That's because, it. And why? Why? Because that was the most vile mm-hmm. <laughs> film I think we saw in that marathon, at least like portraying vile characters wrestling with vile acts and and questioning how yeah. far they're willing the to go. The choices they make. Yeah. A doomed character really from the beginning. Yeah. Totally. So you've got that. You've got Del Toro's own Crimson Peak. You've got, obviously, Todd Browning's Freaks comes into play here in fascinating ways. Like, what was a quote-unquote geek at at this time and place, and and what were they really? Like, just all the tricks being... Mm -hmm unveiled and explained here are so fascinating. This thing runs very long. I think it meanders a little bit at the beginning. The screenplay was written by Del Toro and Kim Morgan, and I think it kind of floats along for a while before finding its footing. But really, you don't mind because you're learning about all this this fascinating setting. You have these actors we've mentioned just popping up and you know, mm-hmm. continually you get a new face who's great. And, um, yeah, this is, you know, this is a good one that I'm, I'm afraid is going to kind of get lost in the year end rush. Me too. And I think that what you're describing at the beginning is one of the things I really loved about the screenplay and the movie, because not knowing where it was going at all, I was constantly in a state of trying to figure out sort of when is the plot really going to kick in? What does this character want? And and that was fine because I was was so kind of mesmerized by the environment of it. And you mentioned some of those Del Toro touches. The character's eyes glow, actually, in certain situations in this movie that really makes it feel supernatural, even though, again, I don't think that any powers are being hinted at. And there's that big scene where he meets Blanchett's character during a performance, and... Cooper is going off script. They have a phrase for it in the movie. They call you made it too much of a spook show. Like you made Mm. it too real for the subject. And now they're, they're too invested and they're going to have too many questions about their lost loved one. And, and you can't do that to them or you certainly can't fall back on that too many times. And the background just kind of dissipates around Cooper in that scene. And this yellowish glow appears around him, almost like he is truly summoning something. And that's that's what I really responded to, is that Del Toro in this film ultimately does always tell the truth. But in the moment, just like every other sucker in the audience at Carlisle's show, we're buying that something powerful and amazing mm-hmm. is occurring. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Now tell me, because I want to know what it was about Cooper in this movie you loved so much. I think he's, and I'll just say, like I think he's really, mm-hmm. really good here. 
though it took me a while to adjust. I don't want to say he's miscast, but I don't know if he's perfectly cast. And it was interesting. I was actually watching as, as the movie is going on thinking, you know, okay, I like what he's doing here. I'm, I'm partial to him anyway. I've pretty much been a fan of most of the things he's done, but it popped into my mind. Like, I don't know if he's weaselly enough and I would love to have seen like Leonardo DiCaprio in this role. And hmm. then I, I found out afterwards, like, I don't know the exact situation, but either DiCaprio was approached with this role or considered it or might have even been cast at one point and schedules changed. But that just makes sense because there's, to me, there's more weasel in DiCaprio than there is in Cooper. That's not, But that's not to say like he doesn't work here. I think he does work, but there's just like an, another level of duplicitousness that I don't know if he gets to. But why, why was it, well, why did it work so well for you? Look, DiCaprio would nail probably any role that he's in and certainly would be really good as Stanton Carlyle here. But everything you're describing that you would maybe want in a DiCaprio performance that you're not sure Cooper quite can bring is really why I like the performance. The fact that he isn't a weasel, the fact that he's your sort of classic noir, good looking mug. He he has the handsomeness. He mm-hmm. has the size. He has a smugness to him. And I'm probably not the only person who has suggested that about Cooper and his performances. It's probably not fair. I'm not judging him in real life. I don't know the guy. Probably very self-effacing and a really good dude. But something about the characters he plays, there is often a certain smugness to them. And that's why seeing him start out the way he does as someone who you think maybe despite what we saw going on in that house, we're not really sure what it is. He's very quiet. Maybe he's actually going to be someone who we're really going to root for. Again, you have to keep in mind, I don't know this is a noir at all at this point. So I'm like, I I could be really rooting for this guy and wanting him to develop these skills and make something of himself. Uh And the fact that he gets to the point that he does and then really does portray all of that smugness. That's where the hubris comes in. You need the fall. If he's already a weasel, you don't get the fall. And I think it's really crucial here to this character, that sense of arrogance, the outsized ambition. And yet at the same time, he has to be convincing enough that despite a certain inevitability to this film, once you figure out where it's going, you think that maybe he is just smart enough and is just talented enough to pull it off. I think that's the trick for me of of Cooper's performance. And the other part of that trick is even as he becomes less and less sympathetic, I was still mostly hoping he did pull it off. Well, and you mentioned the fall and that's what he nails. I think we won't give it away, but the last 10 minutes of this movie, it's um, there's an awfulness that you see coming at a certain point because of what's been nicely laid out, you know, an hour or so before and yet uh, you can't escape it and you know he can't escape it. And I think Cooper nails that sort of pathos that you kind of need to bring you away from saying anything remotely like this guy got what he deserved, but to be a much more complicated moment. Yeah. And we did mention the cast here, but the faces, Richard Jenkins, Willem Dafoe, David Strathern, Tony Collette, in addition to Cooper and Mara and of course, Kate Blanchett. And I really do think Blanchett is delicious here <laughs> as as this character who sure. who just is oozing something and i i really as vague and terrible as that sounds i mean you cannot pinpoint it you are just not sure how to read her moment to moment and that's the conundrum of that character but Every second she's on screen and every second she opens her mouth or even the way she moves. How about the shot where she's got 
kind of a reclining, well, a couch, right, where her patients lay down and she kind of just arches her body in the same shape as that kind of lounger in a very suggestive way right next to him, but without full on reclining, you know, without full on laying down and and going that far. She's just going to keep teasing him, like putting the whiskey glass, offering him the whiskey and then setting it right there on the desk. So it's there. She doesn't she doesn't go and pour it out. She leaves it there. Everything she does is deliberate. And you want to talk about charisma. Well, Kate Blanchett certainly has that. Yeah, and this this sort of part is like serving something up to her on a silver platter that you know she's just gonna she's just gonna be able to devour, which she does. Yeah. Nathan Johnson's score in Nightmare Alley, also one of my favorite parts of the film. Nightmare Alley opens in wide release this weekend. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Let's look ahead to next week, Josh, even though we've been looking ahead to next week, the entire month of December so far anxiety laden as we cram in as many movies as we can we are by the time this show posts only going to be days away from recording our top 10 of 2021 the way we usually break these shows down is part one which we'll post next week we call the outlier show this is where we cover films that typically only appear on one or two of our lists hence the outlier Part two, which we'll post the following week, we consider the consensus show. This is where usually we're talking about titles that make at least three of our lists, usually. And sometimes, yes, there are one or two titles that make all four of our lists. Lover's Rock, I know last year Steve McQueen was one you and I both had at the top and I think might have made both Michael and Tasha's lists as well. So yeah, it does it does occasionally happen that there is consensus within the consensus picks, and I can't wait to start breaking down the list. Of course, that means I actually have to commit to a top 10 list, which I'm not really prepared to do until about an hour before we tape. Yeah, which is a problem because, you know, I'm at the point where I feel pretty solid about my top 10 because I've seen everything that I think has a legit chance of making my top 10. You know, there's kind of two things going on. What is everybody else choosing? And you want to give that a fair shake, but really this is your list. So you want to prioritize those movies you think you will really like that you may have missed from earlier in the year and seen those. I feel like I've seen all those. So now I'm at the point where I've got to see, you know, you can't wait till the day before Adam and then, you know, pull a Michael and and put some made up movie on there (laughs) that I haven't seen. Give me a, a, made movie, time. a made up movie. And for those of you who haven't seen it, I'll warn you now two TV series. Oh, yeah. That's going to be. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You know, you do you, Michael. I'm not going to judge. Yeah, he always will. Something we love to include in these shows is your feedback, including your voicemails. We want to know what's your favorite film of the year. You can leave a voicemail for us 312 264 0744. You can always find that number at filmspotting.net. Just click the about link at the top of the page. You can also send us an MP3 file via email, feedback at filmspotting.net, or just send us words and we might read them on air. There's another way to share your pick. You can vote and leave a comment in the current film spotting poll where we're asking you to name your favorite movie of the year. We'll share all that great feedback along with the results from the poll during the top 10 show. First, though, we do have to share the results of our latest film spotting poll. We were anticipating PTA's latest licorice pizza, and we asked you to name your favorite, favorite, not best, Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Let's see how it came out. 
I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. We did ask you for your favorite, not best PTA movie, and in chronological order, your options were Heart Eight, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love, There Will Be Blood, The Master, Inherent Vice, Phantom Thread, and despite the fact that almost nobody has had a chance to see this movie yet, we did include Licorice Pizza. How did it come out, Josh? Well, and that's probably why Licorice Pizza is second to last here with 1% of the vote. Heart Eight did come in last with 0.5%. Wow. But we went 0.5. 0.5, I know. A rarity. <laughs> I think it's a first. Pulling out the calculators. Inherent Vice received 5% of the vote. The Master, 10% of the vote. I, I thought there was a stronger master support out there, but apparently mm-hmm. not. Punch Drunk Love actually beat it with 12% of the vote. And then tight here in the next tier, Magnolia, 15%. Phantom Thread, 16%. Boogie Nights, 18%. But yes, there will be blood. Pretty handily, 24% of the vote. Phil Schmidt says, checking my letterbox rankings and my favorite appears to be whichever one I've revisited most recently. Thought for sure it was The Master or There Will Be Blood, but the list says Magnolia. The chronology doesn't lie. However, a case could be made that PTA's key collaborator is Hoffman, and none of his films use Hoffman as deeply and thoroughly as The Master. Here's Dylan Dom. Phantom Thread edged out There Will Be Blood for Me for two reasons. One, despite popular opinion, Day-Lewis gave his career best performance in Phantom Thread, not There Will Be Blood. The best non-Ray Fiennes in Grand Budapest performance of the decade. Number two, Johnny Greenwood's score. His combination of beautiful piano and haunting strings created an atmosphere unlike any other of PTA's films. Here's Andrew Hertz. He says, the problem with picking a favorite PTA is they all have melancholy wrapped tight to their core that you have to pick which kind of sadness you wish to identify with at that moment. I've always been more of a Boogie Nights or There Will Be Blood type of guy over the years, but Magnolia has aged nicely with me as I have aged and I truly love the performances in it. Here's Enoch Iglesias in El Paso, Texas. Magnolia is one of the greatest and most powerful emotional experiences I've ever had watching a movie. After watching it, the film might seem a tad over the top, and that might diminish the film for you. And maybe There Will Be Blood is stronger overall, but I still consider Magnolia to be my favorite PTA. So a little distinguishing there between the favorite and best. Yep. Andrew Howell says favorite would have to be Punch Drunk Love. The performances by Sandler, Watson, and Hoffman are off the charts. The story feels lived in slash real, and I don't feel like anyone's drinking my milkshake, hitting me with frogs, or giving me poison soup, which are all amazing but not in the favorite category. Besides, it's his shortest film, which should make it easier for Adam to revisit Touche. (laughs) That's where I'm still at, Andrew. Although, you know, I don't mind the poison soup. Joe from Brooklyn here. On the walk home from the theater after seeing Punch Drunk Love, my wife told me I was beaming. You never beam, she said. I just love the movie that much. It was tense, funny, romantic, at times perplexing. Most of all, it feels like the moment PTA fully stepped into his powers. His previous two movies were deservedly beloved, but Boogie Nights had Scorsese's fingerprints all over it. Same with Magnolia and Altman. Punch Drunk Love may have been smaller in scope, but it was his and his alone. No surprise that his consensus masterpiece came next. And I got to say, Adam, that's why Punch Drunk is still the top for me. It, it's, I totally agree with Joe there. It's, it's when you saw PTA step to the forefront beyond his influences, which you could argue, you know, maybe he stepped back to with their Will Be Blood as kind yeah. of a Orson Welles, Citizen Kane type effort. Hmm. 
Corey Miller says, for what it's worth, I think inherent vice is misunderstood. Here, here, Corey. Although I initially found it to be beautiful and stylized, I too couldn't wrap my head around the circuitous plot and tangle of characters. With each subsequent viewing, however, I settled deeper into the story, collecting new clues and grew better equipped to process what was happening. Take me to Gordita Beach, Corey says. <laughs> All right, we found our 0.5%. It's Kenneth Link. Okay, my answer is heart eight. Three reasons. A, it's a solid character piece for a solid actor, Philip Baker Hall. There's a lot less going on around him, but the gravity in his performance is as deep and affecting as any performance in any other Anderson film. And it anchors a film that would otherwise be fun but not memorable. B, there is no actor in this film who is not a master of their art. And I might note, Kenneth put that in all caps. And C, Michael Penn's playful score supports the performances and dances from scene to scene in a way that maintains the film's overall light mood. Here's Jason Hensley. He says, Coastal elite here. Just kidding. I'm really a nobody who got to see Licorice Pizza early. I have to say, even with recency bias removed, Licorice Pizza is my favorite PTA movie. Wow. I think There Will Be Blood and Boogie Nights are his best, but Licorice Pizza is his most enjoyable. I equate it in many ways to Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, I like that comparison. One more comment here from Sarah Welch Larson. It's Phantom Thread. This is purely because I am actually... Reynolds Woodcock. <laughs> well, you know Sarah very well. I do. <laughs> Does that feel accurate? Yeah, I think that's. I think this is one of the things Sarah and I share in common. A couple of things, and you know, don't disturb my tea time, Adam. Do not <laughs> disturb my tea time. It's kind of related to Olivia uh-huh. Coleman on the beach. The Got same it. sort of vibe. Okay. Well, we thank everyone who participated in that poll and left us a great comment. One way you can support Film Spotting, we've mentioned the Patreon a few times, and if you want to hear more of our CFCA ballots, you can definitely get that here in our bonus content, which is exclusive to our family members. You also get access to our monthly trivia spotting events. Going to have some great captains joining us in January, some first-time captains, as well as some returning ones as Trivia Master Thomas Todd helps us ring in the new year. I don't have the date in front of me, mid-January-ish, and we are going to put those tickets on sale soon. Patreon.com slash filmspotting is where you sign up. This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it's part two of their model males pairing, The Power of the Dog and 1972's Deliverance from director John Borman. I am right in the middle of this episode as we speak, Adam, on The Power of the Dog. I'm just, now that I've seen the movie twice and we've reviewed it, I'm at the point where I'm kind of just devouring all Power of the Dog content. And so far, they've had great stuff to say about it. Your next picture show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find more information at nextpictureshow.net. It's a god-awful small affair To the girl with the mousy hair I met the girl I'm going marry one day But her mummy is yelling no And her daddy has told her to go Listen, young lady But her friend is nowhere to be seen So how'd you become such a hotshot actor? I'm a showman. That's what I'm meant to do. That's from the trailer for Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza. Anderson's new film, his ninth, is set in the 70s-era San Fernando Valley of the director's youth. Its large ensemble recalls earlier Anderson films like Boogie Nights, Magnolia, and Inherent Vice. And Hollywood vets like Sean Penn, Bradley Cooper, yes, even John C. Riley, and Tom Waits do make memorable appearances. But 
the film's leads, Alana Haim and Cooper Hoffman, are not just new to roles of this size, but completely new to film acting. Haim is a member of the band Haim, along with her two sisters. Anderson has directed several of the band's music videos. And Hoffman is the son of the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, who, of course, had a long relationship with Anderson, going back to his debut film, Hard Eight, and continuing through 2012's The Master. Hoffman sadly died in 2014. Cooper Hoffman plays Gary Valentine in Licorice Pizza, a high school student and successful child actor. Haim is the 20-something that Gary asks out and becomes, we'll say, romantically inclined business partners with, Josh? Sure. Yeah, I think that gets us somewhere close to what's going on here. Well, let's actually start with Anderson. We were talking about our poll results and our ranking of his filmography, Punch Drunk Love, we do all know, well-established as your favorite PTA. I'm curious where you would fit Licorice Pizza into the mix. Yeah, with Phantom Thread uh, nipping at Punch Drunk Love's heels, I want to add, I've got Licorice Pizza smack dab in the middle. I think this is really strong. Again, this is a case of like, you know, a filmmaker who's not made a bad film. So take all of this with a grain of salt. But what's most important, I think, is I think I just smiled all through this thing. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's a smile of uh, curiosity. Sometimes it's a smile of delight. Sometimes it's a smile of confusion of, um, you know, what exactly am I watching here? I mean, the the relationship at the core of Phantom Thread, Alma and Reynolds, is also a curious one. And I think this might be curiouser and curiouser. And I think that's one of the pleasures is what's going on between these these two and who do the, you know, that that sounds maybe even moralistic. And I know there's been chatter about the age difference thing, but it's more, I think the more pressing pertinent question is what do they mean to each other at this point in time? And because you can sense this is a filmmaker looking back at a previous time in his life, if not direct experience, what are they going to mean to each other 10 years from now, 20 years from now? I feel like that's the question at the heart of Licorice Pizza is, is really, it's almost like the movie is looking back on six to eight months in its characters' lives, even even as it's dramatizing them in the moment. Does that make any sense? It's kind of mm-hmm. like this, this um, strangely beautiful perspective that the movie offers between two characters who, you know, one is reaching, grasping kind of desperately, but kind of competently towards adulthood beyond his years. And the other is somewhat reluctantly admitting that she misses things about her younger years, um, the way things might have been a, a little bit simpler. And I think less than romance, less than even a friendship or a business partnership, it's more about the way their individual journeys meet in the middle in this exact time and space. And it's mm-hmm. kind of a small miracle that that the film is able to capture that experience for a couple of hours. Yeah, for sure. We had very similar experiences with this film and as much respect and admiration as you have for PTA, I think I'm maybe on a slightly higher level and as good as this film is, I have it ranked seventh, but that's because the six movies in front of it, I just consider to be masterpieces from There Will Be Blood to The Master, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Inherent Vice, Phantom Thread, and then this. And I even love Heart 8, and I've got Punch Drunk last, Josh, but the one thing I'll beg for forgiveness on is that it's the only one of those 
films that I mention that I have only seen once. And I really do think that's relevant because separate from any sort of cop out, oh, you get more out of a second viewing or I'm processing this movie. The simple truth is more than any other filmmaker, I get way more out of a second viewing of any Paul Thomas Anderson film, even over the Coen brothers or other filmmakers who have such rich filmographies and have films that are typically entertaining and enjoyable, but often kind of dense, dense too, yes, and challenging, that's the word. right? On different levels with PTA. I remember seeing there will be blood and liking it. And then the second time going crazy for it, phantom thread, very similar. Magnolia liked it and appreciated it much more even the second time. And you can really do that with all of his films, the master, I remember going in a little bit overwhelmed by the master on first viewing and then second viewing. And I think maybe even a third viewing ultimately deciding that, you know, it was my favorite film of that year. And one of my favorite films of that decade, I think that when you have that second viewing, it's not just kind of the richness of the details. It's where you can actually sort of let the narrative off the hook. It doesn't dominate your reaction the way it can for me on a first watch. And there is a, a looseness to this movie. There's a dreaminess to it. There's an illogic to how it all unfolds and meanders that is somehow still incredibly truthful feeling and authentic that that's where I really feel as if a second time I'll be able to take it in even more and ultimately enjoy it even more. I mean, when have we seen PTA make a hang movie or as my daughter would say, a vibe movie? I mean, inherent vice kind of. Yeah, that's that's also the closest thing. But think about how plot driven that movie is. And really, especially with that central mystery at its core, there's nothing like that that you'll find really in licorice pizza. But if like we will be soon enough, if you're preparing for what will be an in-studio rap party where we look back at our favorite moments from the year, there are two to three scenes, at least in Licorice Pizza, that you have to think about for best scene of the year, that you have to think about for best music moment. If you're not thinking of multiple scenes from this movie, then, I don't know, you're doing it wrong, Josh. <laughs> well, we'll see. I mean, one of, one of maybe the quibbles I have, and I don't think I gave the number, so I'll, I'll say I have it at number five. So behind it, I have Inherent Vice, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, and Hard Eight, and probably people are going to, their jaws are agape over the Magnolia placement. Yeah, that's me. But, but yeah, but we've revisited it. I've given it, I've given it my uh, consideration, and that's just where it is. Still a really good film. But um, yeah, I do feel like to your music comment, it's fun. It it all works, but I feel like he leans pretty heavily on pop rock and soul hits of the era for a lot of the oomph of the movie. And there's yeah, but nothing... the filmmaking matches it. Doesn't the imagery it match does. it? Okay, it does. But what I guess what I'm saying is like, that's what he came out of the gate with, you know, like that's what the first couple of films had. And, and there's, I, I want to... I want to describe this carefully because I don't think that is a poor tactic or a lazy tactic or an unsophisticated tactic to take, but it's one we've seen him do. And it's similar to, you know, the, the Wes Anderson comparison. Like that's what, that's what Rushmore had. Like it was all full of those perfectly timed needle drops. And then you see filmmakers evolve to use music in different ways as PTA has with Johnny Greenwood. Right. And, and so, so yeah, I mean, the music is fun here. I don't know that I'm going to, that it's going to, you know, be among my music moments of the the year. But you're right about the fact that this movie, which is very leisurely, and I think I accepted that early on 
and realized pretty quickly, we're not getting a set plot here. So just sit no. back, let it wash over you, right? So yep. that was kind of fun. It was almost freeing, you know? Like, we're not mm-hmm. going to get this there will be blood master plan clicking into place, or the master even. You know, this is just something you can let wash over you. And I like that about it. But yet, to your point, every 20 minutes maybe, there's going to be an inspired filmmaking flourish that pops up. Maybe in one of the most innocuous scenes. You know, some of his other movies, you can see them building to that. And here we're getting something that's like a throwaway scene, but all of the sudden you realize you're in the midst of something pretty amazing being done here in terms of the filmmaking. Even think about near the end, there's a climactic montage of Gary and Alana racing across the screen, but they're in, they're away from each other, right? They're each racing in different parts of the city and we cut back and forth. And then he and the editor here, Andy Jurgensen, they slip in two shots of those characters running from an hour earlier in the film, just like two quick images. And it's just a beautiful little flourish again, because it's it goes back to what I was saying, right? It, these are two people who are vacillating back and forth between adolescence and adulthood. So why not when we see them running, would we suddenly see them running from earlier in that summer or, or whatever this mm-hmm. is? You know, it's it's just kind of the perfect little filmmaking flourish of the sort that I'm talking about. Yeah, they are all over this movie, not surprisingly, obviously, with Paul Thomas Anderson. And I'm just laughing as you're talking because I'm envisioning Alana Haim running and one of the moments I will consider, it won't be my funniest moment of the year, though, as I suggested earlier, it might come from this movie, just another character in another scene. But one of the funniest lines of the year is Alana Heim running, and it's a very stressful situation, and she is under a lot of pressure. I think she's trying to help save Gary from this incident with the police where he's, you know, wrongly identified. And she runs along and she bumps into some teenagers and she says, F off teenagers. Yeah, which is, it's hilarious. And there's something about it that's just perfect. The delivery, everything. Totally. And, and you know, it's like maybe something you've wanted to yell yourself in your life. Exactly. <laughs> but, exactly. Yeah. She doesn't, she doesn't say F off for the record, but yeah. this is, this is a family but, show. I but think it's, but it yeah. speaks to the same thing, right? That like the point for her in that is not just that it's funny and in the moment, but it's like. That's where she's at in life. She is looking to distinguish herself from teenagers, even as she's still still pulled to the relative freedom that teenagers have. Like this is, I think we're making this sound like a a light film, but there is something about, there's a lot of backdrop here, right? Like the the gas crisis and, you know, slight political references, Mm -hmm. um, this being a, you know, time of tumult in the the 70s. And there's something about uh, Alana where... You know, she ha- she's this woman, young woman who is taking advantage of the relative liberation for women of the early 70s, the relative liberation. But at the same time, she's looking at these kids and seeing there's something about the free ranginess they have that is less fraught, right? There's something about their, maybe it's ignorance, naivete that still looks good to her. And she's trying to reconcile those two things. And it, it's perfectly encapsulated in a great line like that. Yeah, it is. And we've talked about this a lot over the years of reviewing PTA's films, or at least I certainly have devoted a lot of airtime to talking about two of his main themes. And he often explores them simultaneously. That mentor-protege relationship, which also often includes a father-son relationship and the struggles that come with that, whether 
actual father and son or sort of adopted father and son and hustlers, schemers, con men. This is PTA's milieu. And Gary, Mm -hmm. among others, (laughs) certainly fits there. And, you know, I was thinking about it today. I was going to write off the mentor-protege element, but there's actually even some of that. It's just reversed. Here it's the older, more experienced person, Alana, who's studying under Gary. It's, It's not apples to apples, but... Cooper Hoffman is the Philip Seymour Hoffman character in The Master, and Alana, her character here, Alana Kane, is the Freddie Quell character, who's lost, who's trying to figure out who she is and what she stands for, and actually finds some guidance in this this precocious 15-year-old who seems to have it all figured out, or at least carries himself as if he has it all figured out, right? Well, and he, but he also has his own protégés, his crowd of like That's middle true. school protégés following him, which is just so amusing as he's setting up these various businesses. Yeah, he's, I mean, Hoffman is just so delightful as this, he's 15, right? But he, he's like a midlife mover and shaker. I mm-hmm. giggle every time he goes into that restaurant and the maitre d' comes up to him like, <laughs> you want your usual table? I know. <laughs> I mean, what, what kid does this? But we've seen kids like this, right? We've seen, he's kind of like a kinder Max Fisher from Rushmore or think about who Max Fisher was based on, right? Harold from Harold and Maude. He's kind of like that too, except sunnier. You know, he's not quite as depressed (laughs) as Harold, nearly as depressed, shall we say. Yeah. But he's that sort of like, he's living again beyond his years and, and honestly, like doing it quite well. He's pulling it off. Yeah. There's more to say about this film. I know we both have more thoughts and it being a PTA film, especially as we see it a second time, though. Did you have a chance to see it a second time, Josh? I did. And so here's what, you know, you asked me, so I got to say it. Um, yeah. Did it not, did it not get better? It's, um, I had pretty much the same reaction. And I, okay. and I say that only, you know, I do, I want to reiterate your point about all other of his films, I completely agree with what you're saying, you know, that he's a, he's one of those top filmmakers. You need a second watch. And that's not to say that this is, you know, (laughs) fails in any way, but I will say that I I sat down with it again. And even knowing like I didn't have much plot to worry about, because honestly, Mm -hmm. like I said, I, within the first half hour, the first time I was like, okay, plot, don't worry about it. Yeah. It kind of washed over me in, in the same way, which was extremely pleasant and admirable. And there were things I picked up on that I didn't notice before. Here, here's one, which will, you know, I want to run by you. I know, I know we got to wrap it up, but one thing I noticed the second time, which proves it's always going to be a richer experience. And I don't know what the, the importance of this is. Maybe you can answer it for me, but there are two moments in the movie where Gary and Alana have an intense connection that again, it goes back to the images of running that PTA emphasizes. Um, and you realize, you know, it's always a back and forth. Like he has more of a crush on her. Mm-hmm. She at one point wants to be more involved in his business than he's letting her. It, it's back and forth. The two points where they're on the same plane, this, this, this sort of their, their trajectories meet that I described before. They're both running away from something. You mentioned one, the police station. They're both running away from the police station when he's he's let go. And the other one, that's a moment of stress for him. The other one is a moment of stress for her after she's, we haven't even gotten into this, but falls off the back of the motorcycle. <laughs> the motorcycle. So they run away. <laughs> Remember how that sequence ends? 
they run away holding yeah. hands, I think, in both of those instances. And they're the this is to your point about the music. It's well used. It's this it's a moment of freedom and escape and just intense connection that mm-hmm. I'm trying I'm still thinking about like why why are why do those two moments of them running from something are when they connect the most? Yeah. Well, food for thought as more people get a chance to see Licorice Pizza. It is available now in very limited release. I think just L.A. and New York. And there have been a couple screenings here in Chicago. Sneak previews, if you will. But most people will get a chance to see it around Christmas. And I know it's going to come up on our top 10 show. We don't have to divulge anything about our list. We can say we do know because it's already been published that Licorice Pizza is among Michael's top 10 films of the year. We will hear his top 10 and ours starting with next week's show. That's it for this week. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at Filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. It's an easy one. What's the best film of 2021? We want to hear from you. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit Filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at Filmspotting.net. .net slash newsletter. Out in limited release this weekend, Red Rocket opens here in Chicago. That's Sean Baker's film that Josh and I both recommended a few episodes ago. And of course, on this episode, sang the praises of Simon Rex's lead performance. In wide release, the dual recommended Nightmare Alley and Spider-Man Far From Home, unseen by me, not going to make the list of movies I have to see before the top 10. Same for you, Josh, or did you make it? I mean, it's screening as we speak. So, you know, at some point, uh, you've yes. got to stop watching movies so you can talk about them. Yeah. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. I am recording. I actually had, between last recording and tonight, I had a nightmare a very real nightmare like that we had been talking for this. 20 minutes and I had not been recording. <laughs> so I don't think I've ever had that. I've had that fear, right. but I don't think it's ever invaded my sleep before. So I don't know what That's... that says about what point I'm at. Well, uh, over over 16 plus years, let me say, I've had many more. <laughs> Many okay. more anxiety attacks brought on in my sleep by film spotting. So c- consider yourself lucky, but you're you're on the wrong path, Josh. Oh, the, oh, there have been there have been other yeah. sleepless things related to the show. Trust sure. me, this was my first very clear dream nightmare that I would had not been recording. So wow, so I am now recording. Yeah, I am too. Okay, and uh, here we go. Film spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.